0: You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at CatholicThinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. Well, welcome back one more time to those of you who have survived this forced march through 20th century moral philosophy. We have, in the 11 lectures leading up to today, looked at what I think are the most important moments and the most important issues and the most important developments in academic, anglophone moral philosophy in the 20th century. We have had to leave out a lot. But we've also put a lot in, probably too much, I have suggested to you that our story has three big moments in it. That moment in the 19th century when people lost confidence in the possibility of large-scale normative theory, partly under the uh, influence of Sidgwick's crisis in developing utilitarianism, the Nietzschean critique not only of rationalist moral philosophy but of bourgeois European life. That's the first moment that catapults moral philosophy into a retreat, into a kind of tool sharpening exercise which takes up much of the first two thirds of this century, the kind of pursuit of the issues as I've called them of classical metaethics. The second point is the moment at which this classical metaethical project comes to an impasse or people just get bored with it, they lose interest in it, they are forced by things outside philosophy, conditions in the culture, to revive those classical normative questions which had been discussed throughout the history uh, of moral philosophy. And John Rawls' great book, A Theory of Justice, is the occasion for this transition. The third moment, I think, comes at about that same time when philosophers not only pursue normative theory, but as we talked about in our last lecture, they turn to the casuistical chores of dealing with particular normative issues as they come up in our culture. I suggested to you in the last lecture that there's something quite surprising about the confidence the culture has shown in moral philosophy by turning to it for advice on these casuistical problems of liberal democracy. In fact, although I don't have time to develop these ideas here, I think what moral philosophy has become in our culture is a kind of surrogate for a more traditional religious point of view that informs our deepest reflections about who we are, where we're going, how we ought to live our lives. But I will return to these questions about secularization and their impact on moral philosophy at the end of this lecture. But let me just say for now I think that moral philosophers have become something like secular priests in contemporary culture and it's still an open question how successful they're going to be as in their priestly capacity. Many of us, and I include myself among this group, are not very hopeful. Today I want to ask the question where ethics is going and a presumptuous question and it will be even, my answer may seem even more presumptuous. I want to talk a little bit more about where we are right now and where I think academic moral philosophy might be headed in at least the opening years of the new century. It seems to me if we look at contemporary ethical theory as it's practiced in the better universities in northern Europe and the United States where this kind of academic study for the most part goes on, there are three options. There is the continuing development of traditional normative Theory. We have very fine moral philosophers working in the Neo-Kantian tradition, the Neo-Aristotelian tradition, and the utilitarian tradition sort of working away, trying to patch up their leaking boats of theory to respond to the criticisms of their opponents speaking from the other traditions. We have philosophers who are committed in one way or another, and other intellectuals, to what I've called earlier in this lecture series, and I'll continue to call, Nietzschean abandon. The thought that committed to simply giving up on the whole enterprise of reflective activity with regard to the conclusions about the point and shape of human life. There are various versions of this sort of Nietzschean abandon, as I call it, and what we increasingly call our postmodern uh, period, but they all involve giving up on reflection as the central feature of human life, and they all involve, in some sense, a sort of turn to self-creation, sort of invention, creativity, sort of exploring new worlds without the constraint of the kind of classical theoretical limits to what we think human, what shape human life could take. Finally, I distinguish from this what I call optimistic light mindedness the view that I associate with Richard Rorty and his ilk. Maybe uh, Bernard Williams, although Bernard Williams is not so optimistic as Richard Rorty, the idea not so much that we have to throw ourselves into a kind of orgy of self-invention and experimentation with regard to human life, but rather we can just quit worrying so much about the reflective task of thinking through how we ought to live our lives. And I want to talk about some other forms this optimistic light-mindedness has taken in contemporary culture in this lecture today. These are the options though as I see them among academic moral philosophers. I should say before we move on, just one word about what happened to the discussions in classical metaethics. I wouldn't want to give the impression that there was a February day in 1969 or 1970 when classical metaethics stopped and normative theory started up. Those questions and those investigations still go on. They've been transformed in various ways. In contemporary moral philosophy, the old debates among the emotivists, the non cognitivists, the motivists and non cognitivists, and the intuitionists and the naturalists of various forms are now usually carried on under the heading of the dispute between moral realists and anti realists, where the same kinds of issues come up. It's a very active discussion, but the discussions have less of a semantic character. If you recall in classical metaethics, most of the questions starting with more have to do with the meaning of moral language. In the contemporary discussion of realism and, and anti-realism, the question is, what is there in the world that corresponds to moral discourse? Is there something real, and if so, in what sense? of real when you give philosophers an opportunity to talk about the real of course there's no telling where they might end up but these are the options in contemporary normative theory realism and anti-realism are the options with regard to these classical meta-ethical questions there are some trends i think we can identify in academic moral philosophy today let me just mention some of those First of all there's the recovery of history. One of the most striking things about moral philosophy of an academic sort in the first two-thirds of this century was the almost complete neglect of the history of moral philosophy or when the history of moral philosophy was treated it was treated with these absolute caricatures of figures. Views were attributed to Aristotle and Mill that it was utterly preposterous to attribute to them. There were a series of articles on questions like this. Did Aristotle commit the naturalistic fallacy? Or did Occam commit the naturalistic fallacy? Questions were put to historical figures in philosophy that could make absolutely no sense, given the context out of which those questions came and the context out of which the historical figures operated. McIntyre and Bernard Williams, to a very large extent, have transformed all of this. McIntyre's arguments in After Virtue were so powerful and they involved such a rich and controversial view of the history of moral philosophy, his sort of account of the sort of Enlightenment project, its roots in the scientific revolution, its collapse in the 19th century, that he angered so many people they turned I think partly to the history of moral philosophy to show that McIntyre was wrong. Williams made similar kinds of claims. But whatever the explanation is, the history of moral philosophy is now being treated with the respect it deserves and there's an enormous amount of very fine scholarly work going on there. There's also a search for relevance for moral philosophy. I talked last uh, lecture about the applied ethics revolution about which I'm skeptical in various respects, but there's no doubt that moral philosophy at in the beginning of the third millennium Is going to look for ways in which it can make itself relevant to culture and I'll say something about those ways in just a moment. I think we will not go back to the days when academic moral philosophers retreated beyond the tear gas into the philosophy seminar room to talk about returning library books. Third there's a kind of reconciliation with continental thought. One of the features of 20th century Anglophone academic moral philosophy, I, I haven't emphasized enough in this lecture series, is the way it for the most part went on in quite separate from developments on the continent of Europe. Continental moral philosophy was much more engaged with questions of general culture. It was much more influenced by Karl Marx, by Freud, by other kind of more general intellectual issues, it was influenced by a very important 20th century movement in philosophy phenomenology, such figures as Heidegger, Jean-Paul Sartre, and others, although they were referred to occasionally in the Anglophone tradition, their problematic and their work for the most part was not engaged by those of us who spoke English most of the day. That's changing. Now, it's partly because continental figures have come more and more to the English-speaking world. Anglophone philosophers have spent more and more time, especially in France uh, and Germany, and there's no question that continental moral philosophy and Anglophone moral philosophy have both been enriched by this interaction. Indeed, I suspect that in another 25 years, it would be sort of impossible to have the kind of lecture series that I've given you where we focus on Anglophone moral philosophy. I doubt that there will be a distinctive genre of that sort, and finally, brings us to what I want to talk about mostly today. I think there's an increasing political engagement of academic moral philosophy. And what do I mean by a political engagement? It seems to me that increasingly, the problem on the agenda for the North Atlantic intellectual community, if I can call it that, the academic community of Northern Europe and North America is focused on questions about the understanding and the defense of what we might broadly call liberal political theory. A defense and an understanding of the kind of culture in which we find ourselves in. The kind of liberal regime in which we have all lived for most of the 20th century for most of this time did not have to work very hard at defending itself. The alternatives to our way of life, if I can put it that way, in the 20th century have tended to be totalitarianisms of such an awful sort that questions about defending our way of life seem beside the point. Our way of life, all we needed to know was that it was certainly superior to fascist totalitarianism and the kind of Stalinist brand of Marxism that dominated the Soviet Empire. After 1989, though, with the fall of the Iron Curtain, with fascism, a mere memory, liberal democratic theory has to, as it were, stand on its own feet. It can no longer simply say we're better than the other guys. The way of life, and I use that in the most general sense of that term, which we all inhabit which we take to be, most of us, superior to any other way of life socially, politically, and morally in the history of the race, now needs a positive defense. And I think that academic moral philosophy is more and more going to be involved in supplying this kind of defense. And the debates which can take on an academic character, about the merits of broadly Kantian, broadly utilitarian, broadly Aristotelian ways of approaching moral philosophy get, I think, a much deeper interest when they're seen in the context of this debate about, if we can call it that, liberalism. Of course, again, I don't mean by liberalism something like the soft left wing of the Democratic Party, what liberalism has come to mean in some circles in contemporary American political life. I mean by liberalism that great political theory which has its origins for the most part in the 17th century, which triumphs in the American Revolution, which focuses on equality and liberty and representative government, which is celebrated and defended perhaps above all in John Rawls' theory of justice. I want to suggest that understanding the trends in academic moral philosophy today involves understanding what it's going to be like in the next few decades to carry on this conversation about the defense of our way of life. And I think there are three threats right now to liberal democratic culture which dominate the thinking of moral philosophers even when they're not on the first pages of their books. And I'm going to call these, I'm going to talk about each of them briefly, the threat of individualism, the threat of shallowness, and the threat of secularization. I'll talk about each of these briefly and then conclude with some parting words. What do I mean by individualism and why should I think of it as a threat? Isn't after all individualism why, as we might say, beating our breasts in a patriotic mood, isn't that why we came here in the first place? To live our own lives as individuals, to be outside the oppressive forces of class systems or organized political power. There might be a lot to that. What I mean by individualism is what, to use a sort of current term, what we've noticed in our culture that we might call the loss of social capital. Tocqueville, the great French aristocrat and intellectual who toured this country in the early decades of the 19th century, and in Democracy in America wrote, many people think the most penetrating discussion of American democracy and our hopes and our prospects ever written, was absolutely overwhelmed by what he called the private associations of America. The way we hang together, the way we have lots and lots of little communities in which we learn to be good Democrats, we learn to participate with one another, Tocqueville says famously, Americans of all ages, all stations in life and all types of dispositions are forever forming associations. There are not only commercial and industrial associations in which all take part, but others of a thousand different types, religious, moral, serious, futile, very general and very limited, immensely large and very minute nothing in my view deserves more attention than the intellectual and moral associations in America." This social capital, which Tocqueville celebrated, has recently, it's been suggested, is being diminished or is under attack. And I want to call your attention just briefly to some of the work of a social theorist named Robert Putnam, whose work appears in first, what was first a famous article, Bowling Alone, and later became a book. Putnam. Research has focused on the question of how this Tocquevillian point, that private associations, people's tendency to join the 4-H, the PTA, to be on committees at their church, provide the kind of laboratory experience for them to become good democratic citizens. Early in his time Putnam did some research in Italy where he suggested that in northern Italy where there are a lot of these private associations, democratic tendencies are much stronger than in southern Italy where people tend to be much more individualistic. Not many Rotarians in southern Italy. Putnam has established that in this country we increasingly are withdrawing from those kinds of private associations into individual lives in homes in front of the TV set. We're serving on fewer committees, fewer people are going to the Rotary Club for the Wednesday luncheon, fewer people are joining the PTA Club. And he calls this our loss of social capital. This title, Bowling Alone, comes from his discovery that. Even with regard to bowling, Americans more and more attend to eschew bowling leagues. As he famously says, the most whimsical yet disconfitting bits of evidence of social disengagement in contemporary America that I've discovered is this, more Americans are bowling today than ever before, but bowling in organized leagues has plummeted in the last decade or so. So people are bowling alone. They're also not going to the PTA meetings. They are withdrawing into a kind of individual Life. McIntyre thinks that the only the school for virtue is the school of community life and human practices. This kind of individualism should worry all of us Rawls and McIntyre. The second kind of problem is what I call shallowness and let me be very brief with this. If individualism is the loss of social capital our retreat into individual lives, shallowness is the loss of the sense of the good life. As we saw, Rawls is committed, as are many good liberals, to the priority of the right to the good. We can agree politically on certain kinds of principles to govern our actions, but we have to do this while being completely neutral with regard to questions about what kind of life is a good one. Francis Fukuyama, another contemporary social commentator, in another article that got everybody's attention, published in 1989, right at the end of the Cold War, This article is entitled, The End of History, and Fukuyama suggests that with the collapse of the Soviet Empire, perhaps we have reached the end of historical development. There is going to be no more change in history. If history has been driven by conflicts between oppressors and the oppressed, tensions over sort of political systems and the exertion of power with the triumph, as he saw it in 1989, he disagrees with his own views now, with the triumph of kind of liberalism in political theory, representational government, and a kind of mitigated capitalism in the economic sphere, we have reached a kind of equilibrium point in the development of human beings where we can all disagree if we want to, about what kinds of lives are best for us, but we have the framework of democratic procedures and capitalist economic systems to sort of, as it were, smooth out any tensions. This is an instance, again, of our thinking, this is Fukuyama, that we don't have to have agreement on what kinds of lives are the best kinds of lives in order for us to prosper. Indeed, Fukuyama thinks that we will do very well indeed but even Fukuyama admits that there's something depressing about this he says in speaking about the end of history the end of history this is Fukuyama will be a very sad time The struggle for recognition, the willingness to risk one's life for a purely abstract goal, the worldwide ideological struggle that called forth daring, courage, imagination, and idealism will be replaced by economic calculation, the endless solving of technical problems, environmental concerns, and the satisfaction of sophisticated consumerism, consumer demands. In the post-historical period, there will be neither art nor philosophy, just the perpetual caretaking of the museum of human history. We'll all be manufacturing goods to satisfy the desires of one another. A very depressing thought. The mystery passage, which I think reflects this, is a famous passage from the Casey abortion decision in 1994 in which the Supreme Court, our highest court, said this about what liberty commits us to. At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. The suggestion, and if this isn't shallowness, that what's good for us is up to us, you can have it your own way. But in a world in which it's completely up to us, will we be able to find within a culture that provides us, again, this framework of political rights and sort of economic structures, will we be able to find lives that will sustain us, meaningful and rich lives where such lives are needed surely to make these kind of liberal democratic countries in which we live vibrant and satisfying. And this brings me to the third problem, uh, secularization. This course has been relentlessly secular. We've been talking about philosophy, not theology. But it's important to see that it's hard to keep theology and consideration of religion out of absolutely everything, especially in the course of lectures sponsored by the International Catholic University. Just as a lot of people are worried about individualism in contemporary culture, and they're also worried about shallowness, this loss of the sense of the good, a lot of us are worried about the loss of the sense of the transcendent. John Paul II has famously said, when people lose the sense of God, they lose the sense of man. I think this is reflected in what I would call the membership problems of contemporary culture. We're not quite sure who's one of us. For the first time in the history of liberal democratic cultures, we have high-powered academics defending the justifiability of the killing of infants by their parents. Peter Singer, the chair professor of moral philosophy at Princeton University, thinks that under certain circumstances, for example, when the good consequences would justify it, we can directly kill the innocent children, the retarded, the elderly, the disabled, because in a certain sense they aren't one of us. What does this have to do with secularization? Surely the sense of who belongs to our community. And if we're going to live in a liberal democratic culture, which guarantees rights and privileges to everybody, we're going to have to be able to decide who is part of everybody. Traditionally, we. Settle these questions by talking about those people who are creatures, who are created by God, who had a kind of dignity because of this special status. John Paul II has talked about something called the culture of death in a number of his encyclicals in recent years, which I think impinge on this problem. And let me say something about very briefly what his suggestion is and the dilemma we're in in contemporary culture. He suggests that the way we should understand the background for liberal cultures is that we begin with a theistic conception of human life, our life as creatures, we're created in the image of God and we have a special and non-negotiable dignity because of that. This gives us the dignity and worth of each individual. This leads in turn to democratic forms of government. It's really the teachings of Jewish and Christian religious thinkers that undergird the kind of respect for each of us that we find in democratic forms of government. Under unfortunate conditions, though, and bad philosophy, these democratic forms of government can lead to unrestricted freedom, relativism, excessive autonomy. We can legislate against life. We can pass laws that make it possible for persons to kill the innocent or at least not protect them as they should. So we get legislation against dignity and this legislation against dignity undercuts dignity and undercuts the democratic form of government. Secularization is a threat then to liberal democratic culture because of this kind of movement. Democracy itself tends to create a kind of relativistic culture in which the very ideas of dignity which got democracy going are undermined and hence our way of life. Rorty might think that light-minded optimism is enough. The Pope doesn't think so and I agree with the Pope. I think we should ponder as we bring this series of lectures to the close the words of Peter Singer, the defender of infanticide at Princeton and we're better to end a discussion on moral philosophy. Peter Singer says in a recent interview with Dan Rather on national television, without consciousness human life has dropped to a level in fact below that of a chimpanzee or a dog. Now that's an approach to the membership problem with a vengeance. Without consciousness human life can be pushed aside in favor of chimpanzees or dogs. The Pope thinks that this is connected to some very general developments in moral philosophy. Again, I'm inclined to agree it seems important to me that we bring these lectures to a close with this concrete problem about contemporary, contemporary culture. Either moral philosophy in the future will begin to address questions like this one, will begin to address questions about how we're to defend the kind of way of life we're so proud of and rightly celebrate, or I think that way of life is in deep danger. This is where I hope moral philosophy will be going in the decades to come, and where I have some reason to think it will be going. Uh, Thank you very much for your attention during these lectures. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.